You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Ann Barwich, who is a professor in the History of Science Department and also involved in the Cognitive Science Program at University of Indiana. Also, the author of this book right here called Smellosophy. Actually, I'm not even sure how I should pronounce this. Is it Smellosophy or Smellosophy? I don't know where I put the accent because it's an entirely it's an entirely new field. Although I think that part of what you're trying to argue is that neuroscience is something which has profound implications for philosophy and that the boundary between those disciplines needs to dissolve somewhat and that philosophers, instead of thinking as if their problems are all timeless, are going to be influenced by science. And so while you're a historian of, of science, you can't read this book and not think of you as also a scientist. And we were just describing how sometimes you play the role of the the scientist and sometimes you play the role of the, of the humanist in your many teaching roles in Indiana. We'll jump into this philosophy in more detail, but do you think that those boundaries between kind of the, the science sciences and the humanities are ripe for disruption? Is there something that knew about the kind of scientific discoveries that we're having now that is going to cause us to rethink these boundaries in ways that we didn't. I mean, if you go back to, to Plato and Aristotle, they certainly didn't think of these as being separate domains. Absolutely. And in fact, I really think these silos need to be really, really torn down. And I'm not the first one saying that, of course. And my hero is actually Patricia Churchland, who is a philosopher and actually is one of the most neuroscientifically informed and you could really say solid philosophers there is. And she's always been saying that. And I took a lot of my inspiration from her because what she's been doing is absolutely radical. So she said, you know what, instead of uh, treating philosophy as timeless, thinking about the mind just through the mind itself, we have a revolution in neuroscience. The 20th century has revealed things about the brain and how the brain creates mind that should prompt us to rethink our initial categories, folk psychology. What is memory? What is belief? What are all these things we're trying to measure here? And also, well, perhaps if we look at neuroscience, we might come up with new questions about the mind, things that weren't so clear before, because, well, it's any system that you study. If you look at the mature end result, you don't know anything. You get into a design understanding of things, and that's always been shown to be problematic and, and wrong ever since, of course, Darwin. So uh, that's basically what I also think. So definitely we got to break down the silos and history is important because things that used to be that were studied earlier are not necessarily wrong. So there's a lot of heuristics and getting old ideas, even just seeing what have we actually overlooked so far. So it's either positive or negative heuristic, uh, either looking at what ideas were there before or what have we overlooked? So a history of omission. And this is how I came to smell, because one thing that's always been missing is smell, uh, because it's been seen as unimportant, in decline, etc. And also, of course, lots of things uh, about smell have been not studied, especially biology. So what does our understanding actually really result in if we ignore the biology, if we implement it again? And this is where I think we need philosophy. We need history to do good neuroscience as well. You know, when you talk to most neuroscientists, they really love vision, right? Vision seems to be the sense that we love the most. And so whether you're talking about the the five 
classic senses or the 27 sensory modalities that you reference. And as soon as I, I saw that list of 20, I was like, wait, you're going to tell us there are 27 sensory modalities and you're not going to tell us what they are. I was like, all right, that's must be the next book. What is it about vision? Why is it that we focus so much on vision and its role in attention, its role in cognition? It's sort of like the classic sense. And then every other sense is a secondary or less perfect sense. And even smell is certainly at the bottom of the list, right? Smell is considered almost like background noise. And it's something maybe that mice and dogs do, but it's not something that, that, that we do. Why is that? Well, we do think that vision is the best thing ever since sliced bread. You could say that because it's easier to measure. I think one thing is just it's scientifically more convenient. You've got a pretty discrete stimulus. You can project it to a screen. While with smells, at least it's hard to measure. How do you even say one smell is twice as strong as the other? These classical questions. Also, other senses weren't even known to be senses. Proprioception, the way our body perceives itself in space, was kind of discovered as its own sensory modality only in the 19th century. So there are many things we don't know about perception. Vision is also something we often see as like literally as cognitively more important, even though one could question that. And also it's constantly at the frontiers of our conscious awareness. It's impossible not to see. We realize immediately if we don't see something in terms of if we were going blind very suddenly. With smell, it's not constantly at the foreground of consciousness. It's often at the backseat. And smells jump in and out of consciousness. We can't continuously track them. So this is why it's not really something that people consider to be that important. I think the opposite is true. One of the things I often wonder is to what extent, if we just think the other way around, what do we learn? And one of the most important things for me is to understand big things like consciousness. Smell is a great source precisely because it's constantly conscious. We would go mental. We would beg for lobotomy. If we were conscious of every smell all the time, everywhere, you know when there's a smell and you can't get rid of it and you can't focus on anything else. That's why dogs are constantly distracted. I think it's a, it's a kind of a freeing the mind not to be aware of smells all the time, but it shows to what extent smell has a power over consciousness that is potentially different from vision, that is potentially different from audition and other senses. We do have, of course, uh, desensitization with many other senses, habituation. We're not aware of our clothes in terms of the touch of our clothes on our skin all the time. So I think there's more to be studied by the unconscious part and the back and forth of conscious and unconsciousness. So the thing about vision is, well, first of all, it's probably the most recent of our, our senses evolutionarily. And so we think of it as the least animalistic. Although I just had a podcast with someone we were talking about frogs and you know how you can basically figure out what a frog is thinking by just tracking its eyes, right? It's sort of occupying its its attention. But the other thing about vision is that, you know, we can talk about the physical or the physics of, you know, what's happening with wavelengths. We have objective measures of wavelengths and they seem to correlate with our subjective perceptions to some degree. We can talk about kind of the accuracy of vision. And then what I really love about vision is that we have this neurological mapping, right? So when something moves across the visual field, you can actually look at the different neurons that kind of light up. And, and so it's very easy to kind of see what's going on in the brain. And so smells very different in all those dimensions and not because it's simpler, but because it's far more complex, right? Indeed. So people first thought smell should be a simple walk through the system because it looks from the outside 
incredibly simple. You've got two synapses from the air to the brain. When you inhale, you've got these volatile molecules hitting your nose, the receptors in the nasal epithelium interacting with the receptors that sends a signal to the brain. First station is at the olfactory bulb, at the frontal, inferior frontal lobe of your brain, and then to the olfactory cortex. That's two synapses. Two synapses don't even get you out of the retina. That's why Ramon y Cajal actually said this is a great model system to figure out how external stimuli are being created or being processed into internal sensations, into images, etc. Because you think two synapses, how could we not know how this works yet? Well, the devil is always at the details. Like one thing is, of course, as you say, with vision, you've got kind of a low dimensional stimulus, a fairly simple stimulus. Vision scientists hate when I say that, but compared to smell, it is simpler. Where you've got electromagnetic wavelength and with smell, you've got 5,000 molecular parameters per molecule. And then, of course, you seldom smell single molecules, but hundreds of them. Coffee has several hundreds of molecules. And then each of them, 5,000 molecules, parameters, and the, the receptors are not like one receptor per molecule, but you've got a combinatorial detection. One receptor can detect different parts of different molecules, and one molecule can be detected via different parts by different receptors. That's where you get a mathematical explosion of chemical possibilities in the brain. So this is already where at the nose, okay, insanity. And then you don't have a map. How would you actually arrange these 5,000 different parameters of one molecule on the brain? How do you map an odor? How do you spatially arrange different smells? And it turns out that's the wrong question to ask because it doesn't make much sense to measure where in our environment a particular molecule is. With vision, it makes sense that we have to map somehow the kind of different relations, the distance, and also lines and borders. With smell, it's much more important in what context a molecule occurs. So you've got the same molecule in different chemical environments, it means something else. If you've got indole, which literally smells of feces, so it's a strong fecal smell, and I'm going to ruin coffee for you, it can be in shit, but it can also be in coffee. So part of your coffee is indole. You, of course, don't smell it. And it's, of course, in that context, not bad. But of course, if you see dog poo, it is bad. And your nose is very good at measuring that kind of context. It doesn't respond to just simple chemicals. But okay, what does this chemical mean in this context for my body, for my behavior? That's kind of cool, but you don't need a map for that. It's actually a hindrance. So in color, we think about primary colors and then, you know, we can mix them and blend them and, and so forth. But there's nothing similar in the world of odor, right? No, there's no primary smells. That was kind of a thing a lot of olfactory scientists throughout history tried to find. And they tried to find the basic categories and the number varied between like sometimes five, sometimes eight. But in the end, what kind of destroyed that idea was the discovery of the olfactory receptors by Linda Buck and Richard Axel. Because what they showed is, first of all, you've got in humans 400 different receptors. They did mice, so they actually found 500 receptors in mice. Today we know it's 1,000, which then detect odors in a combinatorial fashion. So there is no rudimentary or primary odor. Rather, the more, more important part is how many different chemical features can you detect? What combinations give rise to the next odor? And this is why smell is so fascinating, because with colors, you've got a visible range of electromagnetic wavelengths, but you don't have any new colors. So there's biologically determined what we can see. With smells, we can actually synthesize new molecules with novel odors, molecules that have never existed on Earth, which we still can smell. We don't have to evolve new receptors, 
Plus, they might have qualities that are not known in nature, that might not smell like anything known in nature. So this is why perfumers play almost with an unlimited palette. So the question is like, how does the mind know what these chemical features mean? Well, that's the prize question at the moment. I think the paint companies would disagree. They, they like to launch new colors every, every season, right? But I, I think it's really you know, old colors and, and new labels, right? Oh, yes. It's actually quite amazing because you've got names for colors, which we usually don't have when people say what we can name colors, but we can't name smells. No, actually, if you ask many artists, this is where, where learning and attention comes in. The more you kind of observe something, the more you refine your observation, of course, you detect nuances also between color hues, for instance. And artists and painters, they do have so many different names for different colors. Like I have no idea how, to, how they memorize that, but it's still red. It's still blue. There might be some overlap between blue and green, but it's not something like a color that has never existed and that we haven't created yet. It's just like refinement of observation and being able to discriminate between otherwise fairly similar inputs and also giving it a name. So you mentioned this very important discovery in the science of smell, which was the discovery of these olfactory receptor genes. Can you tell us just a bit about how that works? So, so this is basically saying that it's genetic, that we have at least the basic building blocks of smell is genetic. And so that means presumably also that we have a different kind of range of sensory experiences than other animals or other other species because they have a different set of genes. How does that, that work? It's just that a different gene is expressed in different cells that in your nasal cavity. Is, is that how it works? So what you have is the so-called one receptor, one neuron doctrine, although it has been called into question more recently again. But the, the long-term assumption was and mainly is the case, just not always, as it's always the case with biology, there's always an exception, that you have one receptor gene that expresses a particular receptor type within one sensory neuron. So even though for a long time it was very hard to experiment on the receptors themselves, you could substitute them experimentally with neurons express a certain gene. So that's, that's the kind of idea behind that. Now, humans have about 400 different receptors. Mice have 1,000 different receptor types. Elephants actually have 2,000. So it's, a, it's quite a big system. And what is so fascinating is that these proteins that are these olfactory receptors, they are the largest multi-gene family in the mammalian genome. That's actually quite amazing. They have more genetic space allocated to them than, for instance, the immune system. And they're part of the largest superfamily of protein, uh, of the protein gene family, the so-called G-protein coupled receptors that otherwise are also involved in the regulation of immune responses in vision. Hormones, uh, it's, right? It's, uh. Yeah, precisely. And it's, uh, this is what catapulted off action from, you could say, weird obscurity for a couple of people who are really interested into this is a genetic gold mine. This might help us to also understand uh, drug design better because 50% of drug studies target these proteins. There's money to be made because they're structurally highly variable. But how do they work? How do these proteins detect different structural features? Olfaction is a re really nice sub-model for that. Right. But it's not that there's like a, a lock and key sort of matching between, say, specific smells and and specific receptors? Is it, is it always the case that there's just going to be a large number of receptors involved in most of the smells that we can identify? And I think you mentioned at some point that given the large number of receptors, 
the number of possible combinations exceeds the number of atoms in the universe. And yet still, as humans, there's plenty of stuff that we can't smell, right? Compared to, say, a dog. There's a lot of things which we can smell because there's a certain kind of atoms we can detect. So the olfactory table of elements is much smaller, actually, than the periodic table of elements. That is still quite amazing that the just the sheer combinatorial possibilities are a mathematical explosion in the brain. So I like to compare the brain really with doing mathematics more than mapping the world, uh, like computing the world rather than mapping the world. But as you as you said, for instance, when it comes to the what we can smell, what we cannot smell, there is also the fact that every human actually has its like their own individual receptor patterns. So it's not that you and I have exactly the same receptors expressed. So that, for instance, if there's a molecule that's combinatorially perceived, say 10 receptors detected, I don't have one of those 10 receptors, but you might have it. So while we experience it, it's similar enough. We don't necessarily have exactly the same signals being processed because we don't have the same receptors. So this is why... So this would be like there are people that are colorblind, let's say. And so there may be some people that are odorblind to certain things? Oh, yes. And there's one of my favorite examples is, you know, the aroma of corked wine. And that's caused by a molecule called TCA. There are some people who are anosmic, so they can't perceive that particular molecule. They never have a bad bottle of wine in their life. I should save the corked ones for when I have them over, right? Oh, yes. Actually, if you ever talk to Charles Spence, who's a multi-sensory cross-modal researcher. I already chatted with him, yeah. Great. Well, he has actually anosmia to TCA. No way. He didn't tell me that. (laughs) Which is so he never, like, I think this is a good way to hear, have this bottle of wine. It's like, this is the best wine ever. It's like, yes. So there's genetic variability. I would joke with some of my friends who got COVID that they ought to come over. I could start using up some of the worst, the bad wines in my cellar. (laughs) But I I mean, COVID must have brought a lot of attention to the world of smell. Your book came out before the onset, right? Or did that sort of draw a lot of attention to the the book, the loss of smell that hit so many people in our country and in the world? It did. So it was, of course, not planned. The book was already in press when suddenly this pandemic rolled over, when the first reports came in that something is going on with people's perception of smell. And when first the pandemic, it was like, oh dear, the worst time to bring out a book is a pandemic, a global pandemic, because people read what they always wanted to read over the last 10 years, but not new books. And then when it came, when it turned out that smell seems to be a huge issue here, suddenly people were interested in smell because we only recognize what we're missing when we're missing it or what we can do. And people are fascinated by the fact that everything suddenly tastes the same, tastes bland. Yes, because a lot of what, what we think flavor is or taste is, is actually smell. It's retronasal smelling. So I talked about the orthonasal pathway first. When you sniff, you inhale You've got this airstream coming up your nose. That's what we usually think smelling is. But we also have retronasal smell, where when you chew molecules, the aromas, like they travel basically through the back of your throat up to your nose. That's retronasal smell. And it's not quite the same. There are some interesting differences. My favorite one is, of course, the fact that coffee smells great, tastes kind of disappointing. I mean, it's kind of bitter and not as great. Nobody says, wake up to the taste of coffee. Everybody's like, the smell is somehow the the thing. You've got the opposite with cheese. Certain cheeses are revolting. If you go to certain areas in France and have an Epoir, it doesn't really smell like something you would put on your... on. uh, I learned you're not allowed to bring it on the plane in France, even from your book. Oh, yes. uh, So there's... It's uh, like durian fruit. It's like durian fruit. I actually like durian fruit. 
I gotta say, I think it's it tastes it has a really nice aroma and flavor, but many people don't like it. So it's it's one of those. What I find fascinating from a cultural perspective, many cultures have certain aromas that are kind of an in-group signal. Certain things anybody else finds absolutely revolting. You've got sometimes like the lutefisk. As a German, I often think of Blutwurst, which is blood sausage, and many people find it revolting. I love it. So there seems to be an inch, a lot of things we think are revolting or pleasant also have to do with how familiar we are. So that's kind of an interesting thing that the more familiar you are with an odor, quite often people then start to like it also a bit more. So familiarity is one of those contextual influences on our smell perception. You've got genetics, age, familiarity, to what extent you've got a name for it, the context of something. So there's a lot of complexity going on indeed. I was just reading Grant Ackett's book about how he you know, lost his sense of taste because he had tongue cancer and he's a chef, right? And so he had to work in the restaurant every day for two years with no sense of taste, but he still, of course, had his capacity to smell. And you point out that this idea of two different types of smell, orthonasal and, and retronasal, other animals don't have it. So even though a dog might have many more receptors and can smell a much wider range of things, they, they, would not, they can't appreciate a fine wine or a good cheese or a fermented meat in the same way that we can because of this, right? Is it only humans that, that have this, this bifurcated sense of smell? Uh, some primates have it as well. This is why I find there's a nice intersection between biological and cultural evolution because it started biological. What happened here is that there's a bone that, for instance, in mice or in dogs separates the olfactory, like the nasal cavity from the mouth, which is the transverse lamina bone. And that declined, that kind of went back. And primates, some primates already have no, have the, don't have this bone anymore. But with humans, we also have culture where at some point started to discover certain flavors and that we can create more flavors and started paying more attention. So it's a mix. It's an interesting mix between biological and uh, cultural evolution coming together. And I do think that cooking is one of those things that really make us human. I mean, when people go for art and vision, what really transformed the landscape of the modern world is our hunt and craving for flavors. The socioeconomic landscape, I mean, the spice trade has shaped modern the modern world. I mean, a biologist would argue that all of these responses to our senses, all of the ways in which we interpret the world, they have some function. They contribute to our survival in, in some way. And you know, certainly if you're a, an animal and smell a threat, you run. And if you smell something that's juicy and attractive, you go towards it. But it seems like humans, it's almost like we've lost that instinctual attraction and repulsion to different smells because there's very, very few, you argue, that have an innate valence, right? So maybe cadaverine or maybe uh, certain types of body odors associated with people who are sickly, but there are very few that have an innate valence that we have more or less culturalized all of our kind of smell data. Is that a fair statement? And is that presumably allows us, it frees us up to learn. And if we didn't have sort of some cultural transmission, like, hey, that's not something you want to eat, then we might be set adrift, right? I mean, in that context, it's really the doses makes the poison. A lot of smells start to become unpleasant at certain concentrations because a lot of smells, the the odorants uh, at a certain amount, they would be toxic, but only at a certain amount, of course. Otherwise, even with animals, one of the most interesting things with animals is that they're much more flexible 
in response to odors than you would think. Most of these uh, studies, behavior studies, neuroscientific studies, they do look at how animals respond to smells. What you have is a mouse in a fairly uniform environment, and the only exciting thing it has during its day is somebody sticking a kind of a Q-tip through the cage and go sniff that. So if you have, let's say, predator pee, of course they freeze. But then you think about the mice and the rats in the subway of New York, in the metro. There constantly is some kind of pee and predator pee. And they still run around and look for food and kind of are curious and try to find a mate and shag around. So clearly, there's so much behavioral signals going on that is less hardwired also in animals than you would think. If it's the only stimulus, sure, then it's the only thing you can react to. But if there's a multiverse of if we just think about uh, smells as part of the ecology, then behavior becomes much more flexible. And then it's less of a hardwired thing there either. It's just uh, to what extent it might overrule certain other desires or certain other instincts. And with humans, it's there are certain smells that are mainly perceived as bad. Cadaverine, you mentioned, for instance, is one of them. But there's even if you have it in low enough concentration, it has kind of a sweetish smell and some people don't find it unpleasant. This is also kind of a character test, like uh, instead of doing a job interview about what, where do you see yourself in five years, you might want to just go smell this. What do you think? But there's, there's much more flexibility. And this, because one of the reasons with humans is, of course, that if you have one odor, as I mentioned, in different contexts, it means different things. There's, there's a lot of behavioral flexibility. And I don't think this is a loss of function. I think it's actually a gain of function in the sense that it gives you much more flexibility, exploring things categorizing things and being much more flexible in your behavior and potentially trying things out. So one of the ways we understand how things work is we look at where they seem to malfunction. And so in vision, we, we talk a lot about optical illusions and you talk a lot about some of these kind of smell illusions, right? So I remember in optical illusion, there's the, I forget what it's called, the one with the arrow, either pointing up or pointing down and we miscalibrate the length of the arrow. I forget the name for that. You mentioned M- Müller Liar, the Müller Liar illusion. Yeah. yeah. And so you mentioned a couple of these with odor and how context is really everything. So when you see an image and you experience an odor, the image is going to influence you. It can't help but influence you. I'm more familiar with how we trick kind of wine experts by putting food dye in the wine, and all of a sudden it completely changes their subjective experience of the wine. So how? I mean. We rely on all these other cues to make sense of what it is we're experiencing, right? Yes, I have a, I have an issue, however, with that wine study. It's like okay. one of those studies where uh, it's been, I saw like on, on different news sites, Guardian, etc. It was harshly reported as wine tasting, it's drug signs. And uh, this study shows that this is just nonsense. Actually not true. If you look at the study, they were not wine experts. They were first semester enology students. Okay. Well, so <laughs> right. students might fail. It's not as sexy as a headline. And also it was a forced choice test. They couldn't say they are identical. They had to assign either white wine descriptors or red wine descriptors, which doesn't, that there was no way to say, wait a second, isn't that the same? So these were not spontaneous descriptors that emerged from their subjective experience. No, I sometimes use those studies to tell my students, this is why you read the method section, because it shows like, what did they actually show? And 
you can, of course, influence somebody's perception because one of the most important things also in wine tasting is that uh, you look at the color and you look at basically how the light breaks at the surface. So this is why when wine experts, for instance, hold the glass at a 45 degree angle, they look to what extent, like how transparent is it? How deep is the color? Is there an oily film? Is it kind of a yellowy oily film that gives you already an idea of, well, is it a Barolo, for instance, or what kind of wine might it be? And then from there on, you make further inferences. It's like Sherlock Holmes. You, you use all the cues you can get in order to prime your attention towards particular features. You think if that is a Barolo, then it should have that kind of uh, flavor, like that kind of aroma profile. And then, of course, you can look for it. It's like a spotlight. You can direct your attention to certain things. You either find them there or you don't. And based on that, you just refine your hypothesis. I think you said somewhere that smells are elements of the mind. And so if I tell you that this is milk, you're going to smell one thing. If I tell you it's ham, you're going you're gonna to smell a different thing, even if the stimulus is the same. I think you used the example of Parmesan cheese and, and vomit. And I'm going to think about that next time I'm eating Parmesan. I eat a lot of Parmesan cheese. So I'm going to try and activate that in my head and see, see what it does. Some people, when they smell now Parmesan, go like, oh, you ruined pasta for me because it has a light, it has a slightly vomity smell. The interesting thing is that it doesn't seem to work the other way around. So you might perceive certain, a certain vomity smell in Parmesan, but you don't see like a uh, vomit and go, oh, that works with pasta. So there's, there is something. And the point here is that you've got the same molecules sometimes or certain molecules can be part of both mixtures. So in this case, it was an experiment by the psychologist Rachel Hertz, who basically gave people two bottles, looked identical, had different labels. In this case, Parmesan and Vomit. She also had a couple of others. And people were convinced that these two bottles smelled different. One was, of course, often more pleasant, namely Parmesan in this context. But it was the same mixture. It was a mixture of butyric and valeric acid. So... Because you can find it both in Parmesan as well as in vomit. And the other example you brought with ham and milk, that was one of my favorite presentations. It was by the perfumer Christophe Lodamiel. And uh, some people might know him in terms of his creation, Polo Blue. He did, of course, many, but this is one of his most famous ones. And he did a presentation where he gave people a smelling strip. And I love that one because you had this smelling strip. Nobody was fooling you, tricking you. You had it in your hand. And it smelled organic. Swedish, bit fatty, but you didn't quite know whether you liked it or not. And you had this murmur in the audience, like people were trying to figure out what that was, but nobody was really convinced of either whether pleasant or unpleasant or what it is. And then he showed a picture of warm milk. And you heard this, of course, like, how could I not have smelled this before? Of course, it's warm milk. Then he switched the image to ham and it smelled of ham. The milk was gone in your mind. The ham existed. So I asked him at some point, you you study this molecule. You're the one pulling the trigger in terms of the images. Does it also switch in your mind? It's like, yeah, I can't help it. Even though he knows it, it still goes on in his head. And I think this is a fascinating way to, to study to what extent we've got an ambiguous stimulus and we often have cues of to form an image. There is no intrinsic image associated with the small molecule or with the smell because we associate smells with context. So you're saying that out of context, it's very difficult for people to identify exactly what they're smelling. But if you trigger them somehow by suggesting something, then it kind of helps them to put some sense around it. But if they're bad at absolute sense, they're still really good at relative. I think you mentioned that you can, if you have two different smells, you can always identify them, even if they're maybe 
I don't know, starting off similar and then they have a different rate of evaporation, you can very quickly start to tell them apart. Is that right? Oh, yes. So as you said, like when you have this absolute identification, it's very hard for people to pin it down. They're like, well, I kind of know it or it smells familiar, but what it is, you get different descriptors. Actually, give a smell to five people, you get I don't know how many different associations with it. But if you give them two bottles, say, are they the same or are they different? People are very good at figuring out, okay, they are similar, but slightly different. So they're very good at relative discrimination, figuring out, okay, these are similar, these are not similar, these are just slightly, they're very good at that. And our nose can sometimes different, uh, not sometimes can differentiate odor molecules, even just if there's one carbon atom difference, which can lead to a different smell or even just slightly different concentrations. People are very good at that. And you mentioned also that it's it's very kind of time and place. You're really kind of situating yourself. I oftentimes will have these smell flashbacks and and I don't know exactly what it is, but I'll be like, oh, that's childhood, right? I'll think, oh, that's Saturday morning in front of the cartoons or that's that's my college spring. And I'll have these strange sort of time and place memories, but I don't know exactly you know what it is that is making me think about that particular time and place. And that's different from, I think you say it's different from all the other senses, but it's more similar to kind of like music, right? When you hear music, it oftentimes evokes a time and place. So in a way, often people say smell is closest tied to emotion. Well, yes and no. I mean, you often have, of course, certain smell experiences which catapult you back. But you have it sometimes with music as well. If there's a song, especially a breakup song you had when you were a teenager and it was the worst time of your life, you hear that song later, you might still think, blimey, that person was an idiot. How could I ever, you know, suffer so much? But the song still kind of pulls the heartstrings. With smells, you also have certain emotional connections when it comes to autobiographical memories. But what seems to be different with smell is this physical component because it almost catapults you back physically. It's not just reminding you, but you almost feel being back in your childhood or feel being back at a different place. Uh, and that's where also when you see, for instance, people, the last thing they give away of their loved ones when they die are their clothes. I had that, for instance, when my father died, the last thing was really the, the t-shirts because they smelled of him as if he was still, something of him was still there. There was a physical presence to smell. And that is, I think, makes smell so different. Uh, there's a physicality, a materiality, a presence involved. So if it's sort of a background sense to some degree, but that doesn't mean that it's less important. And I think you talk about how there's a huge industry around smell and how you can influence people through smell. And some people are more aware of it than others, right? Wearing a perfume and so forth. But there's also, and I was talking to Charles Spence about this, where now hotels will have a signature smell or stores will use, a cookie shop will use smells to lure you into the shops and, and so forth. Is this an occupation that, that people can pursue, like becoming a smell artist? And do you think that architects who are now focused on their maquettes and their blueprints, will have to also start thinking about the odor profile of the, the venues that they're designing? It's definitely a thing, and it gets more and more popular. There are even now some historians who study how certain buildings, like trying to reconstruct smells uh, of older buildings, because quite often you know that when there are certain places, some have their unique smell, and it becomes kind of like a signature smell. Quite often we know with the hotels, I got to say, I find these smells in the lobbies quite often annoying, but there is at least the idea of you, you create an association. You, you almost, it's, I feel a bit like Pavlov's dog when people do that, honestly, but it is a thing. People were to ask, well, is this a good thing to get into? I say still 
go into fragrance and flavor chemistry and study Riesling because that's also an opportunity and you have much more fun uh, drinking and studying Riesling than doing hotel lobby stuff. But there is at least an increasing interest and awareness of the aesthetic qualities of smell. So to use it explicitly within context, not just for commercial purposes, but when you think of, well, hotel lobby or perfumes, but also, you know, I have scented trash bags and everything. That was my discovery in America, because when I moved to America, it was kind of this new thing. And now we have it in Germany too, but scented trash bags, great. Not really. But at least with art, you've got now people who use scents explicitly also in art installations, either as accompanying certain art or as the main art. So Annika Lee is one of the key artists. You also have, of course, Christophe Lodamiel, who from a perfumer also went into being an artist and using smell. And what is interesting with him is not only does he create smells, but he also thinks about the institutional part of smell as art. With art, we've got collectibles, like we've got paintings or posters, but how do you do the same with smells, like certain collectibles, certain kind of uh, sculptures with smell? He thinks about that quite uh, intensely. So there's definitely a growing awareness and using smells in different contexts, not just commercial, but also art. Yeah, and so that, that means we could potentially have smell museums. I think there is a smell museum here in Berkeley, and I have not been able to go because of, of COVID, but I think there is one. Well, is this a new thing? I mean, I'm an historian by training and, and yet, you know, historians never talk about the smells. And yet you, you have to imagine that, say, New York City in 1900 just smelled like, you know, horse crap, like, you know, just like all, all the time. Right. And or uh, human feces must must have been all over the place in medieval Europe. And we don't really I guess when it sort of blends into the background and people don't historians didn't write about it. Novelists rarely mentioned it. Is there a way that we can recreate the smell of medieval Europe or the smell of ancient Greece or create these dioramas or smellaramas to help us, you know, reimagine the past? Uh, there, is, there is now a, a growing interest in precisely that and several projects. The museum you mentioned, for instance, is led by Mandy Aftel. So she's been doing that for a long time. And she also helped in the recreation of an old Egyptian perfume where they had some residues and they tried to recreate an old Egyptian perfume. And there's more and more in that interest. Also, there's the recreation, for instance, of uh, Marie Antoinette's perfume and things like that. So it's very expensive, by the way, which is not very surprising, possibly. And in addition to that, there's now a huge project in Europe, Oda Europa, where they basically mine literature, historical literature, to find out, okay, what were the scent descriptors? And then they work with chemists to recreate them and potentially work with museums to not only have visual displays, or sometimes, of course, now you've got interactive and touch, but also to use smell. And I remember, for instance, that when I went to Singapore, there is a, a Chinese heritage museum. They use smells. So they have a recreation of the immigrants' corners and their working areas. And also, of course, for instance, the red light district. And it smelled a little bit like it too. So they use subtle smell cues to give you the, the kind of physical presence of how it must have been to be, to live at that time. And as you say, there, there was a completely different smellscape. There was a lot of like fish in terms of if you've got a fish market or you've got poo, horse poop, horse urine was not just simply present, but also in many also scientific experiments because it's a readily available substance. It has quite striking qualities when it comes to color and smell. So there's definitely something we can still learn. But you're right. This has been something of historical interest 
too late almost. I hope that the current generation of historians is kind of catching up uh, and they're doing a great job. But for a long time, smell was hardly of interest. I'm trying to imagine if you're a multinational and you're trying to come up with a signature global scent, how difficult that might be. Because, you know, say lavender, I have a French brother-in-law who can't stand lavender in food because he just thinks of it as soap. And it's just, he can't get rid of that association with soap. And presumably, you know, pine, for me, pine reminds me of, it used to remind me of pine forests. And now it reminds me of Ubers because every Uber has a pine thing in it and drives me nuts. And I've, I've sometimes, you know, asked them to pull over and let me out because I can't deal with the uh, strength of the air freshener. But these, there are these radically different meanings associated with these different scents. Maybe you could talk about that and also talk about these, the Jahai and the, and the Manique, right? Which I love these people who have a much deeper and richer appreciation of the significance of smell in their lives. Yeah, so there was, because of course, for a long, long time, we thought that our understanding of smell is global. And a lot of the psychological studies on smell were done, of course. The problem of weird studies, let me see whether I still get it together. Western, educated, industrial, rich, democratic countries. Ha! Got it. And nobody actually looked at other cultures, or not enough. There were, of course, there was research on history and anthropology of other cultures, but not systematic enough. And one of the uh, recent pioneers in that field is Asfar Majid, who was at Radbuch and is now in uh, York, uh, in in England, and she looked at the Manique and the Jahai in Southern Asia and realized two things. First of all, they have a very rich vocabulary. So it's not that we're necessarily poor. It's not an innate restriction that we can't describe odors. They have an analytic, rich descriptor, uh, descriptive system for odors like we have for colors. So where you don't just refer to objects, but you've got general categories under which different objects can fall with that smell. And furthermore, she also noticed to what extent certain societies have a really elaborate social system and behavioral system associated or determined by smells. And that just is a good way to show to what extent there's a limit to our assumptions that just because we don't pay attention, that there's some innateness to it, and that a lot of things have to do with learning and attention and are much more flexible. So you're absolutely right. There's definitely something more going on when it comes to cultural differences. You say, well, pine, I say lemon. There's a reason why you don't have lemon-scented perfumes, because I often just think of toilet cleaner. My sister, when she was like four years old, escorted my father into a men's room and she wanted to eat the wintergreen scented urinal thing, right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> it smelled like a lifesaver. And uh, yeah, I guess imagine a lot of cultures have that association. But I think what, what I found interesting about that, I forget which group it was, but they didn't like the smells to, to mingle. They had this idea no. of like smell purity. And I identified with that because if someone comes to my dinner table wearing perfume or hair gel, it, it ruins the dinner for me. It's like, that's a different domain. It's, it's like, I don't know, having your phone go off in the middle of a, of a string quartet. It disrupts the environment that you're trying to create, right? I love that analogy. Like having your phone go off in the opera or something like that. I think this is a perfect analogy for what kind of effect that really is. It, it just pulls your mind away from what you're trying to enjoy and focus on and elaborate on. Indeed, it was the Jahai. They, there are certain food aromas while you're cooking that are not supposed to mix. And also the smell of brother and sister are not supposed to mix. So they've got a, a cooking and a cultural and a social hierarchy based on, on smell, which is, I find 
incredibly fascinating because it just shows to what extent we we can think about what are our primary categories and how do we use our senses to determine them and that's where possibly where my fascination with smell really comes from because it challenges our intuition. One of my favorite examples was the designer Indians in the Amazon who, for instance, we often say, well, you know, vision is a distal sense. We see very far and smell is just close up if we hold something under our nose. They use smell actually as a distal sense because imagine you're somewhere in the middle of the Amazon. It's very important to smell a predator. And to see and to perceive how far that predator is away, because these big cats stink, but you don't see them. There's so much going on. There's there's fog. There's plants. They're well hidden, so you won't see the predator, but you will smell them. And especially people who train their sense of smell, hunters. I remember a friend of mine. She interviewed a lot of kind of a dying art, but the cowboys in New Mexico, and they could tell you, okay, I can smell a predator. I can say approximately from like how far that animal is away, from what direction it's coming. Because you just train your nose. There's a lot of when people say, I, I don't smell well or I can't smell well. Well, you're not paying attention. You would learn to get better with it if you have to and if you are willing to. Yeah, I want to talk about that. So when it comes to becoming a, say, a better you know, smeller, is it a quantity thing, right? Everyone has this subjective experience. They just don't know how to interpret it or do people can they train themselves to become more sensitive you offer a bunch of different examples i think the one the famous berkeley study where people could learn how to follow a scent and they could get better over time you even talk about how very small amount of training expands some portion of your brain but how much of it is actually smelling more and how much of it is acquiring the notation or acquiring the language that allows you to articulate and maybe talk a bit about the relationship between language and scent. I think you speculated that there are some overlaps in our kind of brain areas responsible for language and smell, if, if I recall correctly. Is Why is it that once we can articulate what it is that we're smelling, we can sort of smell better? So the, there was always the assumption or a long-standing assumption by uh, some researchers like, for instance, Tyler Lorick, who did great stuff on EEG with olfaction to say, well, why we seem to be so bad at describing odors is because there's some shared resources when it comes to language and odor. So language took over. That is not necessarily the case. You don't even have to go as far as to meet the Jahai in order to realize that you just talk to perfumers, you talk to sommeliers, where you realize they have an, an expansive vocabulary for smell. And now you might say, is it just naming? It's kind of a iterative procedure. So you need sometimes the names in order to identify something. And that helps you to see more inner wine. And when you see wine experts, for instance, they learn not just simply different vocabularies. It sounds first very weird when you hear all these kind of things that are supposedly in a wine, starting from cherry and blackberry, going sometimes to in Sauvignon Blanc, some sort of cactus that can't be. Or you've got Riesling where people say petrol. Yes, uh, because you have sometimes certain uh, molecules in there where the odor itself asso you associate with petrol, you associate with cat piss. Um, so it can be in there. And if you know what you're looking for, you can find it. So what people do is they use these words almost like cognitive handles and they train themselves. So you have these wine tasting kits where you've got individual smells, small kind of vials, and you smell them. You hone your brain on recognizing that smell and then you try to find it in the mixture and you get better at this. 
you really it's like learning a language at some point you start to understand uh single words then you start to understand sentences certain phrases and you might say what well, is it just naming things i also think that you're expanding the quality of your conscious awareness my favorite example is really wine in that context if you have a wine as an absolute novice well, okay, there's red wine, there's white wine, it smells of wine. This is how I started out. Uh, it's like, okay, I can distinguish them by their color. And Barry Smith, a friend and colleague of mine who works on in philosophy and cognitive science and works on smell, and he trained me in wine. And so one thing you at some point notice is with the words, you're suddenly noticing, oh, there is a particular cherry, a prominent cherry note in there. Or sometimes somebody says something like, oh, did you notice that vanilla note? And suddenly it's there. It wasn't there but suddenly it's in your mind. So there is something about to what extent language helps you to go through the data that your brain is processing, because not everything hits you consciously at once. And it's kind of a, the better you can describe your experience, the richer your present experience, the quality of your experience is becoming. So it's not an input to output relation. It's like a back and forth. It's an iterative procedure. So yeah, I teach a wine class uh, here at Berkeley, and it's the hardest class to get into actually at the, at the business school. Um, but we always pretty much start off the first week. We have someone come in and they go through this wine flavor wheel. And a lot of the students are very uncomfortable because you know they're swirling the wine, they're looking at it and they're tasting it and they're learning this vocabulary. And the vocabulary will ultimately shape the way they experience this. But does it make sense to think in terms of being a, a more skilled experiencer of the sensory world, or is it necessarily domain-specific? You talked about how people who are trained wine experts, they don't necessarily have any better or more complex experience when it comes to, say, coffee. Or you know, when they move to the world of perfume, they're just more or less like the rest of us. Does it have to be domain specific? Is there a limited finite capacity when it comes to appreciating the complexity of this sensory world? I would compare it with sports. So you can have a baseball player and a basketball player, and they're both great athletes. But of course, if you then have Michael Jordan going into baseball, so to speak, that might not work out. So in a similar way, you've got uh, a wine taster trying to become a coffee taster. It's a different skill set. Still great smeller, great athlete, but of course it's not the same categories you're using. So coffee tasters have uh, certain qualities that they are trained to get a kind of a finer attention towards. Like let's say bitter, for instance. Bitter is an irrelevant and a bad category. In wine tasting, it's very important for coffee. It's very important in also beer tasting. So you have to also, you not only have to rethink your vocabulary, but also how you detect certain notes within a complex mixture because of course like you've got wine or you've got beer you've got different notes in there you you search for the notes differently you've got different profiles you're learning so there's a lot of memory function and that brings it back also to when you said well smell training expands certain parts of your brain there was a recent study in 2019 by Johannes Frasinelli who showed that well if you for six weeks which is super fast train people to everyday 20 minute smell training and really intense smell training okay arrange these smells by concentration or when you've got a mixture from this citrus smell is that percent and that percent people's brains actually change and they've got certain areas of the olfactory cortex and related cortices that expand that grow they literally get bigger brains so to speak which makes this why i kind of like to compare the brain and also the sensory capacities with a muscle 
and why I chose also that analogy with the sports person. Of course, you train differently. You're still an athlete. You're still good physically, but at different things. So why don't we teach this? I took, obviously, okay, you teach philosophy, you teach cognitive science, you teach history of science and so forth. I'm guessing that at University of Indiana, they don't let you teach a four-credit class on on tasting or smelling. And, and yet, you know, I took, in college, I took a class on painting, which irrevocably changed the way I look at the world and observe things visually. I took a courses in, in music and music appreciation and in harmony and so forth in college and got credit for it. And maybe we don't get credit for physical education, but colleges offer all sorts of, we've got our yoga classes and we've, we've got our fitness classes and so forth, but there's no classes on smell at any level, not at the elementary level, high school level. Why is that? Should we actually think about offering classes so that people can develop a, a heightened sense of what it means to experience the world this way? I definitely say so. And I actually use it in some of my classes. So even though I don't have a course called Smell Better or something like that, I have a couple of classes where I do try to get the students interested in this topic and also in, in smell training. And one of the last classes I was doing was actually with a colleague. We talked about vision and smell historically and contemporary. And we had a couple of laboratory exercises. And one of that was where that was prior to the pandemic because teaching smell online is the worst thing you could imagine. I mean, it was like, imagine the smell. But prior to that, we bought shit tons, which is an official metric, shit tons of herbs and spices and without, of course, labels or anything, ask them to provide a classification of all these different things. And a lot of the students, of course, since they quite often didn't know anything about these spices, they've never heard of bear. Some even didn't even know of cumin. So they had to suddenly find a way to describe it, to relate them, to come up with criteria of similarity, to justify these criteria of similarity and think about what classification means, what categories are meaningful in what context. And a lot of them love this exercise because they've never smelled a lot of these things. I tried to get a couple of familiar ones, but a lot of unfamiliar ingredients. And they love that. And I also had one where I used uh, one of these wine tasting kits because you've got, of course, oak in there and you have cherry, etc. And similarly, okay, how do you actually train your perception? And they love that. They love that. Absolutely. So I agree with you. This should be done more. And why it's not being done is because we don't pay attention to our senses. It's something we still connect too much to our material presence. And if I'm honest, the more and more we go online and everything becomes kind of a digital presence, we're losing that connection. I noticed how much I was missing during the pandemic, just smell experience. When I went finally out in the summer, everything hit me, every smell. Like you suddenly had some kind of roasted coffee, you had some trees, the world felt richer. It felt enriching compared to just sitting in your flat where everything, has, your nose is habituating to your surroundings. So it was boring. Yeah, I've talked to some finance people who talk about how when they move from pit trading to electronic trading, how diffusion of emotions in the marketplace changed because you know, you're not picking up on the fear. And part of it's about observing physical expressions, but presumably part of it is also about the smell that comes from people who are uh, optimistic, smell differently from, from pessimistic people. And you talk about the, this character, Joy Milne. I, I found this to be absolutely fascinating that this woman could detect different illnesses, but dogs can do it really well. I mean, I, I read that dogs can probably detect COVID at least as accurately and a whole lot more quickly than a PCR test, but we're not 
I've never seen a dog in a hospital doing diagnostics, but they're really good at it. Why are we willing to use dogs in airports to catch criminals like myself trying to bring, you know, <laughs> pancetta back from Italy, but we're not willing <laughs> to use dogs to catch people who have lung cancer? I agree. Eh? I think we should do this much more often. And there are medical detection dogs. For instance, Claire Guest, she's doing the, the UK version of that. And they're very expensive, though. So training a dog, and it's also category specific. Do you train a dog, let's say, on cancer, specific kinds of cancer, lung cancer, or do you use tissues, do you use breath, etc.? You can do it. And dogs are surprisingly accurate. Yes, sure. We know they smell well, but the specificity with which they, they can do that is quite amazing, but it, it's quite expensive. These dogs are not cheap. Why we're not doing that more, I also think it's a prejudice. I think many people just see this as a gimmick. And only in recent years, people start to take that idea seriously. And the same also with humans, as you say, like you've got Joy Milne, who's a Scottish nurse, who actually realized that she can sniff out Parkinson's in people's sweaty t-shirts. And people, of course, if you say that, they look at you slightly bemused and bewildered, and it has this kind of freakish nature. No, they are uh, super smellers. There's certain chemicals coming through from your skin, from the, the body odor. And it's a matter of training as well. It's like a perfumer sniffing out something. And you've got certain people who are super smellers, and she's one of them. Why we're not using that more often is, I think, mainly social prejudice. Like if you say, well, I can smell something or sniff something out, people give you the weird looks. I read an interesting study recently that said that people not only can catch disease from other people, but they can also catch immunity in the sense that their immune system can be activated when they are in proximity with someone else who is ill. And so if you can catch the one without catching the other, that would be ideal, right? If you could, we could somehow isolate whatever it is, the smell of the illness or the smell of the immune system activation, and then help people get a jump start so that when they are exposed to the illness, they could be in a better position to defend themselves against it. It would uh, be pretty wild. So that, I think that's a whole new area of, of research they're looking into. Last question. You know, when you ask people which sense they'd give up if they had to give up one, the, the smell is the one that they give up. But I think there've been some studies that showed that when you lose this smell, this is more likely to lead to depression than, you know, any other sense. And that's presumably just because this is, there's so much background experience that's happening that, that people are unaware of. How can people become more aware of the, of what's happening in the background? Should they try to become more aware of it? Or is it something that necessarily deserves to be in the background? I think they should be more aware. And of course, I do, I can give a wonderful example for that. When you've got certain medical doctors who prior to COVID didn't take smell seriously, and it was mainly patient advocate CASA groups who were pushing this and saying, no, this is important. You often heard, but it's just a loss of life quality. What do you mean just? a loss of life quality. That's the whole point of, of living, if, if you ask me. But also I remember at some point uh, a philosophy colleague of mine, and when he learned that uh, I'm working on smell, he was quite bemused because it was metaphysics and the deep stuff. And he's like, well, but you know, why would you work on smell? It's not important. While well, he was sitting there with his glass of wine looking after the nice waitress. It's like, yeah, uh, clearly these are just coincidental, accidental things. Like, let's be honest what we really actually care about if we do our daily activities. And I do think this is telling us a lot more about the human condition than metaphysics. So why people should be more aware of that is 
really because it does tell us something about how we think, how we make decisions. Not every decision comes from conscious, rational reasoning. I mean, if anything, we, we notice that now through the pandemic. So why it's important to realize that more is because there is a form of quality to our life we can lose. And that has to be trained. We're not just simply having this given input. It's also a matter of how we engage with ourselves, with the things we experience. I find it strange when people neglect that. And of course, when it comes to depression, yes. So when you lose your sense of smell, many people develop a year-long depression. And the best way to explain what that really does to you is when you talk to people who lost their sense of smell. And I remember a nurse actually mentioning that when she talked to anosmic patients, one of them was saying it was as if suddenly they were behind a glass wall. They were cut off from everything else in their material vicinity. That is a frightening picture. And I think it really encapsulates what smell is. It's a material sense. You're not just touching things, you're not just seeing things, but it's almost like uh, your nose touches the invisible multiverse of chemicals around you, which you know when you go to a new place, you get a feeling for it. You've got a feeling for the place, it's narcotic, it's stimulating, it's fresh, and it gives you a certain form of physical connection. It gives you a certain of, I think for me, the sense of smell really is an embodiment of connection. And that's why I think people should train it. And Alzheimer's patients, it's a slow dissolution of the self and a loss of connection to the world. And one of the earliest signs of Alzheimer's is, is loss of smell, right? Yeah. Uh, almost all uh, neurodegenerative diseases have some smell issue. Parkinson and Alzheimer, as you say, you have a decline of smell prior to the motor symptoms at different rates. So there are some differences between Parkinson and Alzheimer when it comes to decline of smell. But yeah, you also have smell hallucinations for other disorders. So you've got schizophrenia, you've got epilepsy, multiple sclerosis, where you sometimes have certain smell auras. Quite often something burnt or something uranus, uh, which is like prior to an onset of, let's say, like an epileptic fit. So there's more to smell and like loss as well as hallucinations than the medical profession often likes to see. Uh, there's been good research since the 1980s already, but there needs to be more funding. It's the usual issue of give more funding to the people who do that. So, Anne, thank you so much. Uh, Smellosophy, which I think this book could be characterized as a you're slingshotting natural philosophy into the 21st century, right? I think that's what you're doing here with this book. Thank you so much for joining me. Perhaps we can enjoy a glass of wine together at some point in the future. That would be lovely. Thank you very much for having me. And we should go to that Berkeley Museum of Mandy Aftel. Like, we should do that together. Definitely. Love to. See you soon. See you soon. Thank you very much. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com. Unsiloed.